Lewis, and I'm here with Tuin. What's up? And we're here with Dale Isinger. Uh, Dale, how would you introduce yourself? How would you describe yourself? Um, I'm a artist, writer, musician. Um, yeah, multidisciplinary leftist. I don't know. I wouldn't describe myself. Nice. And then we'll start off with the basics. Uh, where are you from and how did you get into music? Uh, I'm from Boise, Idaho. Uh, I was born there. Um, I got into music through my family. Uh, my nana plays piano. She had, she lived in a little town in Gooding, Idaho, and she had a grand piano in her in her living room. I uh, started playing that when I was a little kid, and um, started playing piano when I was about three. Oh, third grade, third grade, and um, just was very interested in the the feeling that music gave me forever. Um, a kind of kind of uh, I don't know. I guess I always felt limited by words, which is one of the reasons I like to write to explore those boundaries. But music always felt like a, a different kind of expression. So I guess I, I mean, in in school, I was in. Every band I could be in, you know, marching band, orchestra, jazz band, all that stuff, um, and got into college on a music scholarship, which I eventually failed out of and um, had to figure out something else to do, which is why I started writing as well. Where'd you go to school? My undergraduate was at Boise State University in Boise, Idaho, um, and then I moved to New York on a journalism scholarship to the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism. And right now I'm doing a master's at NYU in like uh, media culture communications. And how did writing become an interest and why journalism specifically? Well, I come from, I mean, my Nana, in addition to being a, a piano player, she was, she was a teacher. I come from a family of teachers. My mom was a teacher and an educator for a long time. And, um, her, her dad's sister was a writer, actually a novelist. So the, the, the arts in general and literature in particular was very important to my family. So I'm um, always a big reader. And then at some point in my undergraduate, when I was deciding I couldn't study music in that way, a friend had suggested I take a creative writing class. And I had never really considered writing in that way. And I just sort of fell in love with like the academic side of it. And then journalism, because I wanted to stay engaged with music, but not with like pedagogical music. I thought that was a waste of time. I'm, I'm really only interested in like new music, you know? So it was, um, it was a way to get free records and go to shows for free. What are some of the things that inspired you musically and what were you listening to while you were experimenting with different sounds? Uh, I mean, I think I, I remember some specific classical compositions like Bolero, Maurice Ravel, like really hitting me because of the, the repetition of the rhythm. I think it like presages minimal, minimalism by a while. Um, and then in terms of like contemporary music there there are a few i mean i was in idaho i came up through the the hardcore and metal scene 
So I, I, I was into like, that was basically the only scene that was like above ground. I wasn't cool enough in high school to really know what was where all the really cool shows were happening. Like Lightning Bolt was coming through when I was a kid, but I just didn't know how to figure that out. It was like before the internet was so ubiquitous and everyone was promoting that much. So things like Converge was really important to me because it sounded heavy, but it didn't sound like other heavy stuff like Jane Doe or um, the Appleseed cast is another one, which was kind of tandem to um, the emo scene, but sounded different, like Low Level Owl Volume 1 and 2. It's like it's such a beautiful record to this day, produced by Ed Rose, who was like working with the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but ended up in the middle of Kansas somehow. So ended up producing all these emo records in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, before I got to New York, I, I think I don't, I don't, didn't really know shit about what music was. Uh, I guess also in high school, my dad traveled quite a bit for business and once in a while he would bring me back some jazz records. Um, Sonny Murray, incredible like outside drummer um, who played with Albert Eiler a lot. Got into that, but Kind of Blue was really my entrance to jazz. Um, and then when I was in my undergraduate, BitTorrent started really ramping up and that's when I really realized that experimental music was so much more than I could just discover by going to the shows that I thought were like extreme. There's like a difference between extreme music and experimental music, I think. Well, it was just when I got to New York that I really kind of broke through some illusions I had about what music making was and um, how to more achieve like that feeling that I was talking about at the beginning of this interview where you know, it's it's something expressionless that you can express, and um, I think through the the whole. I mean, I got to New York in two thousand nine, which is like really late in terms of like the Williamsburg, Brooklyn experimental scene. It's like third wave Williamsburg, really, but like two eighty five Kent and um, Death by Audio and Glasslands. Like I would just walk down there, you know, Market Hotel, that whole scene where sort of surrounded around. Um, just a kind of liberation ideology that isn't, I don't really see happening a lot today, except in like dance music circles. What would you say the difference is between experimental and extreme music? Well, I mean, I think extreme music is, is characterized a lot. I mean, you can look at history. Sometimes they go hand in hand, right? Like, Lightning Bolt, I think, in the early 2000s could be both. Or really what I'm what I'm thinking of is like the distinction between like really technical metal or post-metal. And I mean, everything can be experimental, right? But there's, there's a certain philosophy of approach that I, I'm thinking about when it comes to not expecting a sound that I think is experimental. Whereas like an expectation towards a preconceived end can be more extreme in terms of like, like, you know, really, really technical metal. I think another aspect of the difference to me is like virtuosity is not really required in experimental music, but it, it would be re required in extreme music, right? Where you have to be like a technically exceptional player to to achieve some things in extreme music that you wouldn't necessarily need to in 
uh, experimental music, you know, like like Gary Wilson, for example, or other, or, or Stevie Moore, or other like underground self-recorded experimental pop artists are not really technically that great. You know what I mean? Or in, in terms of like painting, I, I've been thinking about like Jasper Johns a lot, who is like this refutation to um, abstract expressionism. And it had been when he came out with the targets in the 60s, I think, or late 50s, it was like people had been waiting for those paintings and they were just like not that technically brilliant, but they were also not extreme in comparison to like Jackson Pollock. You know what I mean? So there's, there's a difference between the extreme side and the experimental side where the experimental definitely does not have to appear as extreme, if that makes sense. Nice that you're saying. So then when did you start? Uh, you said you mentioned you had around, all around school, you were in uh, bands like marching band and such. When, when were you in your first like band? When was the first time you were like, I'm going to get a bunch of people together and form my own band? And what kind of music were you guys playing? Uh, well, that always seems to happen kind of organically. Like the first time I ever played drum, like I'm a drummer mostly. The first time I ever played drum set was uh, at a friend's house down the street. And that was just because it, it was the last instrument there that no one else was playing. It was like an older brother's high school band and we were the little brothers like jumping on when they went home. So then like it was decided I was the drummer and um i was like sixth or seventh grade and then i i like begged my mom for drums and we like found one in the classified ads when my dad was away on business and she went in um bought it when we were out of town when he was out of town and um you know seventh grade i guess we were playing you know shitty pop punk and that was coming out of like the warped tour which was like a sort of crossover over overland underground moment that my older brother was into where it was like oh this is this is unlike anything we've seen before even though if it, i mean it ideologically isn't that great and musically is even worse perhaps but it was just something to gather around that we thought was cool um so moving from pop punk it was like easy to move toward heavier punk and like emo emotional hardcore, post-hardcore. Um, and then it, I think somewhere in like, I don't know, Revelation Records is sort of a crossover label for me where it's like, you know, you have Quicksand, but you also have Elliot. And um, through that, we started getting more experimental. And I think it, when, we, when we saw Minus the Bear, I think around like 1999, maybe 2000, they came through with uh, Hella, which was uh, Zach Hill's um, first band, who's in Death Grip now, you know. And um, those two bands together kind of, for Boise kids who weren't going anywhere at the time, it, they kind of like blew our minds. And that's when we kind of started experimenting even more and more. Um, so then from, from, that was like high school, and we were gigging a lot already, you know playing a lot of shows out and then in college I had a pretty stable band in Boise that was more like psychedelic experimental writing on like 
the animal collective thing before Meriwether Post Pavilion really took off. Um, and I was really into deer hunter at the time, early deer hunter. And um, yeah, it was kind of like psychedelic experimental pop. And then I, I got to New York and I wasn't in a band for quite a while making solo stuff. So yeah. And what, what made you want to go to New York? Why New York? If I'm being honest, there's like a, a really um, specific stereo gum post that I saw in like 2007 or 2008. That was like a recap of um, a show at Silent Barn, which was like Deer Hunter and, and Bradford was wearing a dress and there was like this manufactured internet moment of like, oh, was he getting an onstage blowjob or wasn't he? And like, I just remember thinking like, that looks like so much fun. Just like I had been kind of more versed in like DIY spaces by that time in and around Boise and just like more performance oriented stuff. But I wasn't really satisfied with like the limits that, that were kind of in place in Boise. It just wasn't going the direction that I wanted it to. Um, it did, New York just seemed like the the only place to go to really chase what I found interesting. Um, yeah. Do you, do you think that, um, you know, being from Boise and, you know, nowadays, do you think there, how do I word it? Do you think the, um, that's change at all in Boise. I know one thing I talk about a lot with uh, friends of mine is that, you know, cause I'm, cause I'm here on Long Island and there's kind of like an art scene here to a degree. It's mostly emo and hardcore, but I always feel like if you look beneath the surface, there's definitely this underground kind of art and music scene. That's got a lot of really cool stuff in it. Do you feel like, um, do you feel like nowadays that's maybe changed in Boise? Do you feel like it's changed? And do you feel like nowadays, has the um, are we living in a post New York world perhaps now? Maybe do you think? I mean, to the second question, yeah, definitely post New York world. In in terms of, I mean, I would say like we were, we were in a post New York world before I got here. Like me being able to see that blog post, you know, that did I really need to come to New York to recreate that moment? Not explicitly to be a part of the the scene, yeah, but that's a different conversation about the importance of scenes in music but in Boise yes there is there is a big there has been a big change um you know my buddy Trevor Powers and Youth Lagoon have been a big part of helping that out um and there are some other bands I mean I'm not I haven't been keeping up like I should be lately but you know my friend Eric Gilbert started a, a festival called Tree Fort Festival there which um, has done a pretty good job of, of drawing in uh, a bigger variety of music. Um, I think the problem with Boise that I found distasteful was just how insular and sort of incestuous it was in terms of um, its size. It makes it hard to like really be free in a way everyone's path is crossing with everybody else's path. So there's always like this, or at least for, for my generation, it, it seemed like there wasn't a lot of uh, new ideas bouncing off of new ideas, but um, the, the internet definitely changed that a lot as it got bigger and bigger. Um, 
I think, yeah, I, I don't know. I've, I've, it's been more than 10 years since I lived there. So what do you, since we're in a post New York world now, what do you think the, the end result? What do, you, do you think, you know, cause we're seeing, I think, do you feel like there needs to be more of an appreciation of people's local scene, like where you're more of a celebration of where people are and where they're from and, and celebrating that scene? Or do you feel like it's all still in New York? It's all still in these big cities. Like, what do you, what do you feel like is the end game of all this going forward? Because right now, New York, you know, like we mentioned, you know, it's, it's post New York. It's getting more expensive. Everyone's kind of there. Do you feel like the only, the uh, lot, the next kind of step is for the future generation of musicians and writers kind of embrace where they're from or embrace maybe more non-coastal places in the u.s or like um yeah i mean like i i do think that like undercurrent of really for lack of a better term avant-garde exists anywhere that you really go looking for it like arthur russell from was from what iowa i think but you know he moved to new york because of visibility now anyone can be visible I think in general, not even relating to the arts or music, we need to be looking at things on a more local level. Um, this crisis with the COVID-19 shows that better than anything. I mean, there's just like no substance to the federal government. And as like silly as it is to look to, to Cuomo with these like starstruck eyes, that is that needs to be the, the pattern for for governments and, and uh, groups of people moving forward is increasingly localized action um, because we can't, I mean, if, the internet is, has done a great job of making marginal voices visible, but, you know, as Foucault said, visibility is a trap. Like if you are seen, then you are seen and you can't really change that. It has to be about coming together as, as groups on like groups in in spaces, not groups on the internet where mobilization isn't real, right? It's so easy to get a billion Spotify streams, but how do you get a billion people in a room? Um, it, I just think as time goes on, the, the, the tendency for tastemaking and gatekeeping and criticism is not as strong nor important as it was 10 years ago, five years ago. I, I actually want to add to that too. I think I think that's what kind of makes this kind of um, created this like post-New York world because I think that like New York, like musically, culturally, kind of had this expiration date on it because of its like lack of kind of, you know, focusing on like the community, like, you know, getting people, getting like, because like DIY venues are like shutting down. There's like a lot, there's a lot of problems happening with, happening with that, like with local scenes in New York. And like, I think that um, like, because New York has focused so much on like its its image, its um, kind of illustrious like aura, like this like historic this like kind of like um, revivalist like like heyday kind of idea, like um, focusing on like the past and and like the museumification of like all like it, what it used to be. Like now, like we're seeing like especially in like rap music, like Atlanta is kind of making a comeback because like in the South with those types of local scenes, like those were like undercurrents the entire time New York was kind of, and like New York and California were kind of leading the pop and um, uh, like the industry basically. And like those, those scenes are on the rise now because of like the, the like altruistic nature of like 
how they've built their, how they've built the music like locally and like the community they've formed around that. Like New York kind of missed out on that opportunity in like in the eighties and nineties, like when it was, you know, this whole this like monolithic like cultural fad kind of Yeah. I think I think what you're talking about is just the idea that living in a city gives you greater um cultural capital. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But without without you know, talent, skill, or vision, it doesn't really mean anything. And in terms mm-hmm. of the DIY spaces that shut down around New York, it's really easy to support a space on the internet or like a post. But if you're not actually in the room, you're not helping. Right. And I think I think it's easy to to look at Atlanta hip hop, which I I would argue Atlanta's been the center of hip hop since. I don't even know. It's like mm-hmm. it's outcast, I guess. Yeah. Um, it, New, New York has, is just where media organs are centered and where avant-garde punk and, you know, hip hop sort of started. So mm-hmm. we, we have some like obligation to give some nod to history, but you don't have to do that when mm-hmm when everything is accessible all the time right it's a it's a really strange for for art and music i don't i don't think art has ever been valued less than right now yeah definitely what do you think has led to that devaluing of art um it it it, it, it has a lot to do with the internet in terms of uh, the democratization has gone two ways. One, it's given everybody a voice, but which is good, but bad. <clears throat> it's given everyone a notion of validity towards their opinions because people, I think, don't people don't understand how the internet just points you towards things that you want to see already that you're you're being presented with an answer to a question that you yourself didn't ask that it's a bias machine and just because one other person agrees with you it it doesn't mean that your opinion is one valid and two true people people tend to not realize that opinions can be true or false um and this is this has led to like this strange phenomenon where it's where it, um how how would i say this it's 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 weird where i don't know there there's more difference than ever but more similarity than ever as well you know what I mean? Where everyone is different, but at different times we can overlap in the right ways, and that's that's contingent upon the the opinion machine, you know, matching us up at one point and then breaking us up. Um, and for that reason, we don't need art to challenge our beliefs. We don't need art to to tell us this is impossible, but yet here it is. That's historically been the role of art 
um, as, as I see it, as, as this catalog of our freedoms in the face of, of domination. No one feels, I mean, we feel dominated now, but we all share the opinion that we feel dominated and we don't feel, you know, scared to express this opinion. Everyone, everyone has this sort of notion that things are wrong, but we're locked in this sort of cycle of oppression where, well, we're all inside right now. You know, like COVID, like we're all inside right now. None of us are really working except these, quote, essential services. There's this like general cultural imaginary that the, the, the imbalance is worse than ever. Like we're basically an inch from a general global strike, but we can't think about it that way because we're so fearful of, of something that is beyond the grasp of our intuition. And what, what does art do for us when we can't even leave our homes? Like, is, like what is art, you know? It's, it's such a strange time that I think that the value of art has to do with criticize, with asking that question itself. Because the art market itself has become so disgusting in, in its, if you, if you look at, you know, from the 90s, basically on the, the young British artists like Damien Hurst and these people, and then Jeff Koons, especially, and these, these multi-million dollar artists who get bought up right away before their message really gets any sort of anti-capitalist traction. You see this sort of pattern to emerge where people are buying art as, as simply like a tax haven. There's this building in Delaware that I know about that literally houses thousands of paintings that rich people own, where the global art market has just become this, this strange money laundering operation. And I think one of the most people, one of the people who's most valuable in this critique right now is, is Brad Trammell. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a, he was he was an internet artist who's become like an internet art critic. Talks a lot about this how there's like a art industrial complex that goes hand in hand with art journalism. And if you want to take his ideas and extend them to like music journalism, it's it's pretty easy to see how it plays out with certain artists being pushed by certain publications to put them on certain stages at certain festivals to put them back in the publication to look at and say, wow, look at how cool it is. It, it becomes this, this invisible cyclical industry where people, people's notion of what is important doesn't ever really change from fame or monetary status, even though it looks different than the old model because it happens on Instagram. So we feel like we're, we're doing things ourselves, but we don't tend to think about cell phones as mass media because everyone has one um yeah i think i think it's just the 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 radical democratization that is that's led to this really you know pennies pennies for everyone essentially it's just split and split and split and split and split what do you think is the end result of that of that democratization do you think it'll get better or do you think it'll get worse do you think there'll be some sort of middle ground like what's gonna where do you see it going? I think you look at the history of communication technologies and they all have a, a rise and an adaptation and a, and a 
like a, a, a phase where they become sort of background in society and then they're just there. Um, they all get kind of capitalized in the same way in the 20th century. Um, I've been studying like, um, the NFL lately. I'm, I'm more interested in sports right now. When you look at like this thing called the, the I can't remember exactly what it's called. It's like the, the Sports Broadcast Act, I think, 1961, where the, NFL, where the NFL got together and said, okay, we're going to negotiate our broadcast terms with on television with um, all of our teams as one unit. And the, it's insane because the main uh, author of all antitrust legislation up to that point came into Congress and said, oh, okay, we're going to exempt the NFL from antitrust laws for this specifically, and this law still exists today. You know, that's for television explicitly. And then you see things like the the, the Microsoft antitrust monopolization thing happening where uh, Internet Explorer was bundled with Windows, and Windows was the only operating system people were using, and so everyone then started using Internet Explorer. And I don't know how old you guys are, but it was like really radical to start thinking about using different web browsers for mainstream consumers some time ago. So what I'm, what I'm trying to say is I think there's, there's a retention point that I believe we're now past that the usefulness of any communication technology is, as far as it's like radical potential starts to fade into the background and something else becomes more prevalent. I'm not sure what that is yet because we're so dependent on the internet. Um, I'm not up on my my technological developments really. I think it has to do with like smaller area networks and people utilizing uh, privately owned networks or or hijacked networks because you know the the government basically owns the internet. It came out of a, a protocol, a Defense Department protocol called. ARPANET, um, which was like a, a, a networked series of, of colleges that, you know, I mean, if you, I, I, get, I get crazy about people like losing their minds over privacy or, or, you know, the NSA leaks and things like that. It's like, what, what were you doing on the internet to begin with? Like, I don't know. <laughs> but, um, you know, people like, Oh, they're reading my messages. Like, what? What are you afraid of people finding out? Like, I, I, I generally assume that people freaking out about privacy on the internet are, are creeps and weirdos doing something shitty behind the scenes. <laughs> um, I think, I think it's, again, it's like, moving away from, this. I, I I've been trying not to say globalization, but it's, it's that globalist mindset that is going to be backed away from. Like, I think the COVID-19 thing is the truly first, not global, but globalist event in history where it's showing like the weakness of like this international or transnational system and, and just how frail it can be as this mass. And it's going to take these like smaller unities of smaller centralized governments to overcome it. Like Trump is telling people, oh, no, we're not going to help you. He's literally saying that to some governors, like, no, you need to start working on it on your own. It's like, what, how much clearer could it be? 
And like the lack of international cooperation is insane when we have the tools to communicate on this level, when the pharmaceutical company companies have the tools to develop vaccines to COVID uh, viruses for the last like 30 years and they just choose not to because it's not profitable. It, like how much clearer could it be that this scale is not sustainable? So the, the democratization will will be retracted in the sense that we just don't need it on that level to survive as people. Sorry, very rambling, but <clears throat> I, I, I was going to ask, like, do you think that, um, do you think that in a way, like music, like, it's like strictly artistically, not even like on the business side, like, do you think it's become kind of dependent on like democratization, democratization in a way because of like this kind of like accelerated interbreeding between genres, you know, like we all, I can go on YouTube and like find some random Turkish folk punk band from 63 or something. And like, it'll, and then like now I can interpret that into like whatever music I make. And like, do you think that like, like, like we were talking about earlier, like experimental and um, those like scenes, like, do you think it's, they're kind of dependent on this, like this uh, like instant access democratized like catalog in a way? I think I think that's done a lot to help the understanding of music. I, I don't know if I would say it's dependent. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are always people who are obsessed with sound in that way that they're seeking out more and more. Like there's a, label, a great label called Sublime Frequencies that puts out a really obscure global, like world sounds. I don't know. There's one of my favorite records they put out. It's called like indigenous music of southeast asia and there's another one called like 60s pakistani mm-hmm. uh, rock and roll I, I don't think that that instant access is important i would like it if we all were slowing down more mm-hmm. um, the 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 instant access is is part and parcel to the sort of entitlement mindset that i was talking about earlier where it's you can right. just now 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 might me 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 mm-hmm. you know it's um music music makes it seem i mean mu- music is is strange right because we take this ownership of it we we like to think we have some personal stake in it because it's it's somewhat transactional or participatory mm-hmm. but i don't think that's the case as often as we'd like to think so that the instant access question it devalues it in a way because it, it gives less time for critical reflection or reflection at all which i think is the argument of you know people who like to buy lps still what influenced you politically like how did because you got a lot to say about all this stuff which i like it's great like what influenced you politically as a, as a person i guess um i mean the simplest answer is that my mom would read me the golden rule every day um, from like a Norman Rockwell book. And I think that's like the purest expression of politics, which is just treat others how you would like to be treated. But in terms of more like governmental politics, <laughs> I wrote like a, in high school, I wrote one article for the, for the school paper. And it was like, it was a total spoof. It was, it was for the, around the 2000 election. And it was like, a spoof where I was like writing like, oh, the Republicans put on red shirts and the Democrats put on blue shirts. And if you don't like that, just move to socialist Canada. And I remember my English teacher who was like 
a total hiring just because he was a good basketball coach. He like pulled me aside in the hallway and he called me a knucklehead. And he was like, listen, Buster, you better get your facts straight. Like Canada's not socialist. And I was like, wait, I think it is a little bit, but like, and then it was, it was just this feeling of, I don't know, this feeling of, of something else that I've always been interested in. And in college, I had a, I had a lot of far leftist professors, including one named um, Ed McCluskey, who, who's worked with like Zizek, I think. Um, oh, okay. And like Hanno Hart and some other, other people from uh, Sylvania. But um, they kind of informed my interest in like critical theory and not communism in particular. I, I think I've been really interested in like, Soviet politics and, and communist politics because it's been so outlawed to think about in the United States. I mean, coming from Boise, Idaho, it was like, why aren't we talking about this? Why can't we talk about this? And it's not like I'm, I would consider myself explicitly a communist or would even be able to call myself a Marxist with the lifestyle I lead, but I just think it's interesting to explore things that you're not necessarily supposed to. And then just getting to New York and seeing some of those communitarian principles happening in terms of like the market hotel or uh, death by audio, you know, it, it seemed to be more real than um, in the arts than I could have hoped. What was the political uh, uh, climate like in Boise, Idaho? Was it mostly like, was it very like kind of conservative, like old fashioned or was it more like, what was it like? Um, yeah, it's very, very, very conservative. Um, Boise itself is kind of more blue than the rest of the state. There's like a Democratic mayor, I think even still, or even when I was a kid. But for the, for the most part, it's, it's super conservative. I mean, the, the worldwide headquarters of the Aryan Nations was in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, for a long time. Um, it's like 29% Mormon in Idaho. Um, and there's a, a real strong libertarian side to Idaho as well. Like the Ruby Ridge incident happened in North Idaho, which which uh, influenced Tim, Timothy McVeigh um, in his bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building. So, I mean, you just, it was deeply homophobic, deeply racist, deeply capitalist, like, I, I, and not things that I even realized until much later. Um, you know, normalization is a hell of a drug. Do you think any of that, any of that has changed over there, or is it still very much the same? Yeah, things are, things are changing slowly, but surely. I've been, I've been surprised by some relatives of my family coming around to certain thoughts. I mean, my, my parents are uh, really far left as far as Idaho goes. And, um, but, you know, there's the, there's the errant aunt or uncle out there who are, who are always surprising you at the Thanksgiving table. Um, but, you know, I don't, I don't see any opposition to like gay marriage anymore or abortion. Um, at least in the circles I travel in, I know it's there for sure. I, I was just out there. I mean, people fly, you know, this, the Confederate flag out there, which makes absolutely zero sense. It's like not, not a part of the Confederacy. Like, I, or, or for example, um, 
you know, I was, I was in Starbucks with my dad last winter and, you know, a guy, a guy's wearing a, a, their open carry in full camo at Starbucks. It's perverse, man. Like the, the weird neoliberal capitalist shit that goes on is really just really something else. There's no, it's, it's a weird convergence of, of, neocon and neolib beliefs out there where the market is really important but your freedom is also really important so i don't know yes improving on social issues but not improving really in terms of social progress if that makes sense no yeah um so then when was the, when did you start like like writing about music like when you start or, or doing journalism in general because i know you staffed at the new york daily news for a while and i know you've written for spin and pitchfork when did you first start like really uh, i know you mentioned like how you got into it but like when did you start really like pursuing journalism as a career and writing as a career in college um in my undergraduate i saw it as, as my ticket out of the town but i didn't really have any bylines except in my college newspaper until i moved to New York. Um, I really started at uh, New York Press, which is an alt-weekly, which is gone now. Uh, I wrote there for um, three or four years. Such It was such an awesome paper, really. I had my first cover story with them. Um, that was between like 2010 and 2013, I guess. I was also right out of, I mean, it's been weird for me because I have this this side of journalism that's like hard news, and then I have like the arts journalism as well. At that same time, I was an overnight um, news editor in U.S. and World News for NBC, and through there, I started writing for like NBC New York specific music blog, and that's basically how I met everyone in New York through those two jobs because it was an overnight job. So I was spending all this time on turntable FM. I don't know if you remember that, but, um, and then writing about New York music all during the day. What do you, pref- do you what do you prefer? Do you prefer doing more hard news stuff or do you prefer doing more culture uh, kind of critique stuff? And like, music uh, stuff? like, what do you prefer? I think it's all pretty tedious. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's hard to like make an. Imp- I think my hard news reporting has had more of an impact on the world, or I don't know. It's hard to say. I've definitely accidentally really damaged musicians' careers. You know, I was just trying to be funny, or you know, I don't know if I don't know who I've helped. It's hard to it's hard to measure who you help in in journalism, and and on what, um, by what measurement. You know, you can't. Like are re are retweets a, a good measure of your impact, or is somebody going to a show a better measure of that impact? I don't know. I think I think if I wanted to answer that question, it would have to do with my own ego, which I don't really. It's too big. It's it's just really about the byline for me. If, if we're going down that road, uh, I know two, and I know you're. Like he, you make music and you also write about music. Dale, you make music and you also write about music. How is does writing about music? Does being a musician and being someone who understands music and who makes and who produces and mixes stuff does that affect how you approach uh, thinking about music and does that help you as a writer? 
What do you think, Tua? Um, I mean, it's like, it's, you know, like how it's kind of comparable, not really comparable to like how a director will see will watch a movie differently. You know, like you you you're kind of you, you have like an inside kind of inside the mind perspective um, with when you're listening to music. Um, also, like just strictly from like a technical perspective, like your ear, if you've been playing music, if you play actually, like if you play instruments, or even if you produce your ears a little more, uh, like uh, it can pick up more, your perception will be a little more enhanced in that respect. And artistically, I think like sometimes it can kind of make you a little snobbish when you approach writing music, writing about music, but also it gives you kind of, um, like a, uh, you can you can kind of get inside a musician's head more, uh, like in terms of like how they would how, like how they how they would um, creatively like approach making an album or making a song, um, and then like in terms of analyzing music, I think it I don't think it really adds anything more to analyzing music. I think that like you know we all like with art like you know you 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 experience it on like any level wherever you are you know like it like even if you. Ha- think nothing of like um a pollock piece like you still have experienced it like it's like it 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 comes to you at whatever level you are like the way the way you analyze music and the way you like music manipulates your emotions is the same for anybody who um makes music or not so like it's it's hard to say that it really has like an impact on like how you're criticizing music because like you (laughs) i think it can sometimes make you a little snobby with criticism um just because like you know like the ego comes into play with like um what like what you prefer to listen to and what you prefer playing but in terms of analysis yeah like it, it doesn't really like like anybody can i think anybody can really write about music i think that musicians have a better vocabulary when it comes to writing about music so yeah i guess it does improve analysis of that in that way because you because you're on the inside yeah I agree with you. Anyone can write about music, which is proven by the thousands of terrible pieces that get put out onto the web every day. Right. <laughs> In terms of preference, though, I don't know. I like. I think preference and taste have to be considered distinct. Like preference, mm-hmm. what I like, and, and taste is a system of judgment, right? So, like, yeah. I understand why people like the new walks of hachi album or the new dua lipa album or whatever does that mean i like it i, I mean mm-hmm. i don't listen to either of those yet but not necessarily you know but um in terms of being a musician and being more snobby about it i think it's been det- detrimental to my writing because it has to do with explaining things in a technical way that um other people won't necessarily understand but, right. um, but when it comes to technical writing or technical playing, like I think so many of the most boring people are the the best trained. And like, you, like just how like you know being a, being a virtuoso doesn't make you a better writer. Like it just like because you can you can be a really great musician, but also have like a bad ear for detail and like a. You can you can be really good at tech, at playing, but like be kind of a bad artist. So like in the same way, like you can be an extreme, you can be a virtuoso, but like you, the way you write about music and and listen to music and listening is a 
huge part of like, you know, actually writing a thoughtful analysis is going to be like, it's going to be more dependent on like your actual ear for detail rather than just like your technical skill. So in that, in that same sense, like you can't really create a direct relationship between music and writing about music because, um, you know, like being, being really good at music doesn't mean you're a good artist. Yeah. So like all you all you really need is that you really you really need more of a like the, the ear for detail is going to be there but like the passion for you know actually writing a thoughtful analysis isn't necessarily going to be there and like 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 actually getting good listen in and being critical in a non like in in a accessible and like understandable and like important like an actually relevant way is going to be a little harder. Yeah, I agree. I think um, the spiritual aspect of, of music has has kind of been ignored or, or um, taken a backseat to the spectacle of music, um, mm-hmm. where, or, or spirituality in general gets like written off a lot these days. Um, but yeah, I mean, who's a really good technical player? But like. A terrible artist. I don't know, like Jaco Pistorius. Like, right. Yeah. You know, like these, anyone or like, there there was a moment in history where they were kind of the same thing. Like Franz Liszt, an amazing piano player who also made some amazing compositions. Or I guess uh, Chopin even was considered a virtuoso. But then again, it's it's or virtuosity. I guess is is different from being technically skilled. Um, mm-hmm. But. Uh, um, yeah, it, I agree with you. That art and artistry are never explicitly tied to technicality or technical skill. Definitely. How long were we at New York Daily News for, and what? In what? And uh, why did you eventually leave? Uh, I was there for five years, uh, a little less than five years. Um, I was a street reporter for them. I was full lance or full freelance that entire time um, and there I, I left because I don't know we just came to disagreement I felt like I was not um, of much value to, to them any longer and then I convinced myself I wasn't valuable and then I just quit doing good work and we just basically decided to part ways yeah at the time I mean, I don't know if you follow that paper closely, but they've um, gone through a lot of cutbacks in the last few years, a lot of change of ownership, um, that kind of thing, where I don't think it's necessarily the fault of any individual person that I wasn't really being looked at or considered a valuable employee. I mean, I liked being freelance. I liked my job, but um, I just wasn't contributing good stuff to them and came down to a fuck up on my part essentially um so i i resigned oh so you weren't staffed at new york daily you were at new york daily news you were just freelancing there i I mean i was I, i worked i worked so much for them i mean i was i was effectively part of the team you know i was in the okay. office once in a while um but you know i had strong working relationships with all the editors and um i wrote hundreds and hundreds of articles for them 
And then have you done a lot of uh, hard news reporting since then, or has it mostly been more like arts and culture related since then? Uh, I haven't really done much writing at all since then. Um, mm. I'm I'm kind of gearing up to get back on the street. I was a street reporter for them. Um, I'm hoping to start doing that again for another New York paper in the near future. The uh, the coronavirus has kind of put that on hold for the time being. And what made you want to go back to get your master's and go back to school and uh, for communication and such? Um. I, th- I think it has to do with the the extent of my ideas is, is, and what I want to talk about is really limited by the speed of the, the internet that I'm sort of inundated with and all the editors and websites that I know. Um, I want to, as I said, I think we should all be slowing down a little bit. So I want to get back into books, essentially. Um, and I want to make some inroads in terms of uh, academic publication, and eventually, I mean, the long the long term goal is to be, you know, teaching at some point. As I said, I I come from a long line of teachers, so um, just figure it's time to start thinking about something bigger than myself. I got married about a year ago, a year and a half. Oh, nice! And um, you know that changes your perspective on things, so. What do you want to teach? What are you trying to like? What do you want to explore? What do you want to, what do you want to put into the into the minds of today's youth in in, the, in academia and such? Just difference, nice. you know, um, opposition, uh, methods of of questioning, um, histories of of um, or invisible histories. I suppose. I'm really interested in in you know, alternative histories, um, alternative ways of living. I guess in terms of specificity, it would be, you know, like an ethical history of journalism, you know, I think would be an interesting course to teach, you know, problems of, of ethics in journalism, how ethics can be bad for journalism, those kinds of things. Which would include Health. like the stuff with that happened with Gawker and uh, Peter Thiel and Hulk Hogan. Wait, what, can you elaborate on that a little bit? On what happened with Gawker? Oh, well, no, I mean like ethics and journalism and such. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I think, I think a lot of people don't realize that um, journalism, in its what I would consider its most effective form, was a, a blue collar. Uh, a blue collar profession and um, organs of power realized their susceptibility to like public opinion at some point. And people like Joseph Pulitzer, um, Edward R. Murrow, and other people who institutionalized journalism did so in a way that standardized um, a, a rigor and this notion of objectivity, which I think has been ultimately bad for um, society, where you know that's that's one thing to think about. Where what, what is a Pulitzer Prize really? What does that entail, and and does that does that command a certain ideology, a certain relationship to power in terms of what kind of work that thing produces? 
or in the case of like objectivity in general, how does that restrict certain modes of thought or certain publications in general from from seeing the light of day? You know, I think you can rationalize anything, and there's a whole literature of research that shows how this notion of objectivity, which is relatively new, especially in journalism, um, has led to to some pretty questionable decisions under the like, for example, the the whole thing with uh, the New York Times and the 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 detention camps of children along the border of Mexico. Like I think with them prevaricating in their language on the front page during during the the outset of that, you know why they can't just call those concentration camps or read the genocide convention and realize that the interference of anybody's, um, the, if you read the genocide conventions, there's a provision in there that says that interfering with the children of any one ethnic group constitutes genocide. Like that is genocide then, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I just want to say, it's, like, it's almost like kind of like when does objectivity become apathy kind of thing? Um, I, I don't know if I would go that far because the, I think the objectivity fuels like a rigor or a sense of purpose in editors, especially, especially. but mm-hmm. what it does is neutralizes or sterilizes certain, um, uh, truths, you know, mm-hmm. that, that are at a counter interest to the public good. Like there's a difference between exactitude, which is like a record of fact, and truth, which is like our agreed public interest. I think Stalin said that better. But um, yeah, the 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 notion of objectivity in 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 terms of what we can and can't say it for our cultural cachet as certain news organs is is needs to be reexamined. I would also say that there needs to be an examination of an accreditation process of, of journalism in the in the U.S. Like in terms of in, in terms of something similar to like the the bar for um, people who practice law, um, which sounds counterintuitive to the notion of a free press. But I also think baking the free press into the into the uh, the documents of a country is problematic. How so? But by, by means of institutionalizing it just like that. I don't need your permission to have a free press. I don't need your permission to assemble. I can do those things without a document telling me that I need to. And then how would you tie that into the Gawker thing with um, Hulk Hogan and such? For those that don't remember, wait, can you just uh, quickly describe what that was for people who may not remember that? And how would that tie into all that? Um, well, it, it, it has to do with Gawker, which was like a very important website, which understood these problems with subjectivity and understood the problems that, you know, obfuscating and hiding certain nuggets of of information. For example, um, Peter Thiel's sexuality, right? Peter Peter Thiel was a a Silicon Valley billionaire who Gawker outed uh, as gay to, to some to some rationalized ends that, that it was newsworthy. Um, Peter Thiel didn't like this. So at some point, Gawker published this sex tape of Hulk Hogan 
Hulk Hogan didn't like this and decided to sue Gawker. And Peter Thiel basically bankrolled the, the lawsuit to the point that Gawker just doesn't exist now because they had to pay out their entire equity to Hulk Hogan. So there it, it's a, it would be an examination of how transnational capital can affect things like free speech within the limits of the law. Move, bitch, you got coronavirus. Ooh, shit, you got coronavirus. We ain't finna do shit with this coronavirus. I ain't finna take a trip with this coronavirus. Move, bitch, you got coronavirus. Ooh, shit, you got coronavirus. We ain't finna do shit with this coronavirus. I ain't finna take a trip with this coronavirus. I'ma chill at the crib cause I'm safe here. I ain't even about to drink me a Corona beer. I'm about to stay at the crib for about a year. And I ain't coming back out until this shit clear. I done bought me a how is the um, How has the COVID-19 crisis affected you uh, as an artist, as a person? And what kind of, how can people, what's the end result of this? How do we get, where do you see this going? Where do you see it going for, how can people support independent artists and such during this time? You know, what's the end, what's the end result of this? You know, not not to be too cynical about things, but these are choices we should be thinking about in our everyday life. Um, for me, it's affected just um, school right now, specifically. I hate doing these online classes. I hate Zoom. I hate, I hate virtuality. Um, I don't know. It's affected my notion of reality more than anything. Um, it's easy to get hopeful about certain changes to social relations when you see something like this. And then you watch the Senate and House push through this bill that they're arguing over whether or not the, the stimulus check for individual Americans is $600 too much. And will that de-incentivize de people from working? And it's um, it's hard to say where what will change. I read a piece by Elaine Boudot on Versco Books the other day that basically argued nothing will change. This has been this is business as usual. Um, I don't know. I I've just been doing a lot of reading and trying to ignore what's happening out there. <laughs> How has it affected you? Um, I'm not in school right now and yeah, my job's all fucked up now because we're on different cycles because there's too many people there. It's been crazy. I haven't seen anybody, you know, it sucks, man. It's a weird time. It's just unprecedented, obviously. Yeah. I, I was working part-time at a little hippie store here in, in Brooklyn and lost that job, you know, um, just, I don't know. I feel fat as fuck. Um, I, I don't know, man. It's 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 really. I just hope like it it changes people's consciousness because I think a lot of like a lot of people in the middle have sort of this is this is um clued them in a little bit more to like what the the Sanders campaign, for example, has been talking about in terms of like inequality, where. You know, people who are who are comfortable don't tend to see their privilege as easily, or or become um, resentful when you try and point it out. 
So for for the for the bullshit on bullshit crimes to be on such like skeletal display in this crisis is hopeful in terms of like shifting consciousness. But it's going to take a big push if there's like any actual change to our healthcare system or our system of um, governance or or banking or anything at all. Do you think that do you think this like pause this kind of forced pause is going to be helpful for contemplation in like terms of that like consciousness change like just like collectively? Um, unfortunately, no. I see most people who I who I encounter online just like playing Animal Crossing, and yeah. <laughs> which is like mind blowing to me. I mean, you see all these memes that are like. Oh, me canceling plans with my friends, like right, right before I go out, like I love to stay home. And then like you get to stay home and people are like, I can't go out. It's like, there's no, there's no, you know, consistency to anyone's uh, worldview in my opinion at this point. Uh, And that that has to do with like the the momentary nature of the internet and how we communicate with each other at this point. But you know, it, there's no real, I mean, there has to be like a leader to get behind. And unfortunately the DNC decided like Bernie couldn't be it once again. So I don't know. I don't know what to say. It's, it's a really bleak moment in history. Shifting gears like for a second, how did Yvette happen? Yvette happened. Um, do you know who Nick Sylvester is? Uh, no. Nick Sylvester is a really he's a, a prominent music critic. He was an editor at Pitchfork. He, he had a column at the Village Voice. Um, he owns a, a label called God Mode. Um, oh, okay, yeah, I know God Mode. Yeah, um, Yeji. Yeah, Yeji Channel Trace. Um, that you know um, but I met Nick through Twitter um, 2012 2013 and um, he eventually hired me for God Mode to do some stuff and um, he I mean he put out a, another band of mine called Horse Lover Fats and um, I guess this was 2013, and uh, he he introduced me to Noah because Noah was looking for a drummer at the time, so that's how it happened. There was a drummer. There was a drummer before me in Yvette. So now, it's, so Yvette's kind of become your project now. You're kind of just doing it on your own, or no? It's Noah's project. Oh, okay. But there is an LP that is still um, TBD. Uh, that I did with him. How long were you in the vet for? Six years. What? Why'd you leave the band eventually? It was just time to part ways. And what are you? So what are you doing these days? What are you doing creatively? What are you doing in general? Like what are you up to now? Like what's what's up next for Dale Isinger? Well, I have um, I run a really small label with some buds called House of Feelings, which is also the name of. Uh, 
a, the, a musical project. It's also like a party night. Um, we've had moderate to good success with that so far. Um, I have a solo project called Terminal Scout, which I put on an LP this year, which is like weird house ravey neo cyber jazz shit. I don't know. Um, I'm working mostly on like uh, house music now, dance music, which was kind of like the direction I wanted to go with that was more like electro techno sounding. And you can hear that a little bit on the, the LP that'll be, I think it'll probably come out this year. But I have a, I have a band with my wife called Mr. Boy and we make like like deep house basically. Have you always had like more of a house, like dancier leaning with the music you make? Absolutely not. No, I mean, no. that's something that's grown um, over time. It's I started getting really interested in it with when I was working for God Mode, um, mm. and uh, Shamir, who's one of my good friends, um, was introduced to the label, and he came out from. Vegas and was staying with me and Nick and he started working on those first Shamir records and um, that's really when I started to get into it. I mean, I listened to like Aphex Twin and Orbital and like Paul Oakenfold and all this stuff when I was in high school, but I kind of branched away from it when I discovered like noise music but um, the the tendency for a lot of noise musicians these days is to go back toward techno but um, just working with Maddie Fasano uh, who's one of the guys who who runs House of Feelings with me I was introduced to him through God Mode and Nick Sylvester and um, he's very melodic um, so it, it it's it it has to do with philosophy as well in that I think house music is kind of like the philosophically most pure music that can be out there right now in terms of like access and mm -hmm. um, democracy and um, purpose. Like sometimes, you know, I, I, I look at some old noise records I made and I'm like, what is the purpose of this now? Like, you know, it's, it's just not this, it doesn't serve any function to some regards. I'm not talking about a vet, I'm talking about some other bullshit you guys have probably never heard, but um, I think I think house music is like it's really it it allows for that like the instantaneity of what you were saying earlier in terms of like the access it allows mm -hmm. for that overlap of genre, but it it has the most propulsive and um, physiological um, connection that is there. And also, if you look at look at the second Matrix movie. They're in that cave underground. Um, that's the shit right there. You know what I'm talking about when they have that giant rave? Yeah. yeah <laughs> that's the shit. That's the shit.
house is just like it's deceptively simple but it can be so transcendent and so beautiful at the same time like i don't think people realize how like uh tended toward house like burial is or um daniel avery which is like more techno things like this and you can see that you can see this tendency in the critical field as well like the octo octo stuff on pitchfork that gets uh best new tracks and the dj code stuff and all that too it's 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 more of a generational shift i think people wanting to mature but also wanting to retain some kind of foothold in new music so i guess we'll wrap it up here where can people find you if they want to like follow they want to like follow your work listen to your music where can people find it um that's kind of the fun of what i've done is like i've been thinking of myself as an internet artist for a long long time and i'm it's a maze if you want to get in there um it's everywhere it's all over the place right now i'm using twitter again i don't know i don't know why i started using twitter in quarantine again um i was on instagram mostly i take a lot of street photos and like look through trash a lot um post that on instagram but that's kind of at a, at a hold um these are basically the two places i'm posting right now <laughs> all right dale thank you very much for your time this has been a really good uh podcast sure thanks for thanks for asking me to do it yep thanks for talking to us dude see ya the tape there's more stuff to watch for you Ooh.